0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the knowledge, the insights, and the wisdom to be successful as a cybersecurity leader. This week, we're going to be talking about the Executive Order on Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity, signed by President Biden on the 12th of May. But before we get going, let me share with you a brief word from our sponsor. Today, every business is a digital one. As we migrate workloads to the cloud, adopt DevOps tools, and support remote workforces, digital identity becomes the new security perimeter and the number one target for cyber attacks. Many breaches start with a compromise of privileged identities. CyberArk, the leader in privileged access security, offers the most complete set of identity security capabilities. Attend CyberArk's annual Impact Live virtual event on June 8th and 9th. Register today at impact.cyberark.com. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, where we provide you with the podcast for career advice, insight, wisdom, and to help you along with your cybersecurity leadership career. This is G. Mark Hardy. And I'm privileged to talk to you this time about the recent executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. President Biden signed this on the 12th of May. And it is quite a long article, and you should probably be familiar with it. You might have heard a little bit here and there, but I haven't heard anything in terms of a podcast. So I decided that I'm going to make it available to you so you can listen to it while either driving into work or working out, and you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. The background here is that, of course, we've seen a lot of major cyber attacks fairly recently. and They seem to be getting into a crescendo. Uh, big deal, of course, was in December 2020 with a solar winds attack, where the Orion software was targeted by the Russian intelligence service, or Shturzba Vneshnich Razvedki, and the uh, SVR is the Russian equivalent of the CIA, and they're often known by an acronym, uh, APT29, Advanced Persistent Threat, or Cozy Bear. But that particular operation allowed the Russian nation state actors to perform a supply chain attack on anyone using SolarWinds Orion software. So if your company used that and updated the latest version, well, you got infected with the malware. Well, that's pretty brilliant in a way, because if you infect the supply chain, then one infection there can then get pushed out to a number of different organizations. And the White House indicated that affected the Treasury Department, Commerce, State, Energy, Homeland Security. Several hundred U.S. companies. And for those of us who are paying attention in the news, FireEye broke uh, the news of it because they got infected by that and they caught it. Well, it's interesting because I remember when that first hit the press and everybody said, oh, FireEye's going down, they're going down. I said, wait a minute, guys. Uh, they were the ones who caught it. And I don't think FireEye is a problem. And furthermore, I can't imagine some nation state actor with that level of sophistication wanting to break into FireEye just to go ahead and steal their tools because I'm sure they've already got tools that look like this. And they go like, yep, got one of these, got one of these, one of these. Hey, you know, we never thought of that. Wasn't going to happen. And yet by uh, making that risk-based decision, which I think was a, you well, know, at least on their side, not a very good one, uh, they went right into an organization that probably had some of the best security on the planet and got caught and turned their whole operation inside out. And so that was a huge... Uh, win for a while for Russia, uh, but then ultimately, the United States was able to go ahead and catch it. Uh, Then in January of 2021, Microsoft exchange for zero-day exploits discovered on these on-prem servers, which then followed a global wave of cyber attacks and data breaches. And although Microsoft released the updates on the 2nd of March, the vulnerability is still assumed to affect as many as a quarter million servers. And some of these get infected with ransomware. And, of course, that's sort of the gift that keeps on giving. Then a May 7th colonial pipeline indicated their billing systems were compromised. And they're a victim of dark side ransomware. And they had no ability to bill their customers. When so, well, they halted pipeline operations. They could have moved the oil. But if you can't get paid, that's not a very... A good business model. And as a result, they couldn't comply with the SEC, other financial reporting regulations. And for those of us on the East Coast, uh, significant outages, a large number of gas stations had some fuel stor- uh, shortages. There was a state of emergency on the 9th uh, declared by the president. We had a state of emergency uh, in my state of Florida that was declared by the governor because of all the panic buying and things such as that. So in the first five months of President Biden's tenure, there have been at least three large-scale cyber events. And I say at least because there might be another one we haven't heard about yet that we're going to finally learn about. But these events have really influenced, I believe, the administration to move forward and publish this executive order. So let's take a look at what's in this executive order and uh, these key sections that are here. The first section is on policy. Here, the administration identifies the scope of protection and the security has to include systems that process data. All right, well, we know that as IT or information technology, and also those that run vital machinery that ensures safety, OT or operational technology. Now, the call out on OT is really important because a lot of organizations will focus on IT, but forget about their operational technology. And if you think about it, There's too many important OT systems out there, automobiles, pacemakers, airplanes, industrial control systems, Uh, the smart internet of things, all those sensors out there. Those have often been ignored. And for those of us who had lived through the early days of the internet back in the 90s, And watched all the security problems that took place, and then eventually we started building in all kinds of fixes, et cetera. The world of OT is sort of a flashback. We're seeing this all happening over again. And so now the administration's calling that forward. And the policy states that the prevention, detection, assessment, and remediation of cyber incidents is a top priority. It's essential to national economic safety. So, in establishing the policy, it was basically putting this front and center, and includes, of course, including IT and OT. Number two, removing barriers to sharing threat information between the government and the private sector. Now, that's a big deal because for those of us who had served in the government and particularly in the military, a lot of the information we have is classified. And it's classified for a number of reasons, in some cases, because we don't want an opponent to know what we know. And in some cases it's the method of collection where if somebody knew that how you were collecting it, they'd simply change their way of doing business and therefore deny that information. And that has been an issue for a number of years and it's not just government to corporate, but it's even in government to government. Anybody who's ever worked on a NATO operation um, or a coalition realizes that there's an awful lot of barriers there. In any case, if we go back to 9-11 and we look at what you know, we've been referred to as stovepipes of excellence, where we have information that has not been shared effectively across different divisions and departments, et cetera, the hope is a reorganization of DHS would be able to help out with that and to an extent it has, but they're they're still there. And so now the requirement is to remove the contractual barriers to threat sharing. So software providers... Cloud service providers can better share their data with federal agencies, such as CISA, the FBI, and elements of the intelligence community, who then are responsible for investigating and remediating these cyber events. So cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, we've heard about those probably in the news recently. And now there's some, we get to some fairly aggressive timeframes in that OMB within 60 days. It has to go ahead and then come up with contract language requirements for federal acquisition regulations, FARS as they're called, for contracting with IT and OT providers and recommending some updates. And so, therefore, the change in the contract language is going to be significant where they're required to collect and preserve data relative to cybersecurity incidents, provide that sharing and reporting as they relate, to be able to give that to the government, collaborate with federal investigative agencies, and service providers share that threat information with agencies in industry-recognized formats for incident response and remediation. Now what we're starting to see, and there's another uh, a of whole bunch of requirements in here, and again, we could be on here for an hour and a half reading the whole thing, but the point that we want to relay here is that one of the big issues for many of us, if we're out there in the, in the civilian world, is that contractors must report cyber incidents to the federal government within three days of initial detection for the most severe cyber incidents. No keeping this thing under wraps, worrying about, can I exercise my stock options before this goes public? Yeah, we've heard about problems like that in the past, but rather it's making a requirement for this. Section three pertains to modernizing the federal government, cybersecurity, And if we think about it, it is a requirement for our government to adopt modern practice, such as zero trust architecture. If you've listened to previous episodes, we talked about zero trust architecture. It's an environment where you assume the worst. You assume that every transmission is fake and that every machine is compromised. And from that, you then move toward being able to authenticate and encrypt all your communications. And if you have an effective zero-trust architecture, it significantly reduces your risk. And so each executive agency is directed to develop a plan to implement the zero-trust following this standards and their guidance. CISA and GSA will leverage FedRAMP, the Federal Risk Management Program, to develop security principles governing cloud service providers. And then CISA shall develop a cloud service governance framework, which identifies a range of services and protections available to agencies based on the severity of the incident. And an action item here, the order specifically requires agencies to adopt multi-factor authentication and encryption of data at rest and in transit within 180 days of issue. What we see here, then, is a move, and a rather aggressive move, away from, I don't know whether it's an ad hoc approach towards security in the federal government. We've had it for years, but for those of us who both worked in the government and then worked as contractors to the government, there's been a lot of variability out there. The goal here is to set some standards and say, this is what we're going to do. It's going to work correctly, and we have to make it such that the reporting requirements are there the infrastructure is there, and both for federal systems as well as cloud system, that's where the FedRAMP comes in, all have to meet a much more aggressive security stance. Section four is entitled Enhancing Software Supply Chain Security. And this is a big deal. And what happens then is that there's a requirement within 30 days for the Secretary of Commerce going through NIST soliciting inputs to come up with new standards, new tools, and best practices to comply with this. And then within 180 days, publish preliminary guidelines. Within a year of the order, additional guidelines for periodic review and updating them. Well, what is this all about? In the software supply chain, if you think about it, Any product that you utilize is going to call libraries, it's going to have different components, it's going to have things that get called up there, might use .NET, might have their own um, open source libraries, it could be proprietary. But what's missing then really is some sense of a secure environment that we can check the provenance of the software that we're using. One of the guidance requirements is to develop secure software development environments for having administrative separately build environments, audit the trust relationships, establish multi-factor risk-based authentication, and conditional access across the entire enterprise. Document and minimize dependencies on enterprise products that are part of the environments to develop, build, and edit software. Encrypt data and monitor operations and alerts and respond to cyber incidents big set of requirements there, and that's just for the secure software development environment. We'll then find out there's a requirement to employ automated tools for maintaining trusted source code supply chains and validating the integrity of the code. By being able to audit trust relationships and ensure these multi-factor authentication and risk-based authentication, we're driving down the likelihood that bad code is going to be pushed into production. And if we think about some of the things that we had faced previously. Remember we mentioned about solar winds and that is a supply chain attack. Someone being able to attack that particular um, development pipeline such that the attack tool was then pushed all the way to production and it got passed out. The problem there is this. We talk about being able to certify software and we can do an awful lot with cryptography and digital signatures. But when the vendor itself digitally signs a software release saying that this has came from us. And in fact, it did come from us. It just, they didn't know what else was in there that created a real problem. And here is the big deal that I think we're going to see is kind of a sea change. Providing a purchaser, a software bill of materials for each product, either directly or publishing on a public website. Now, I've been back and forth with some other CISOs talking about this, saying, I don't know if that's such a good idea if you want to go ahead and list everything that's in there, because you might therefore be advertising to the bad guys. Here are all the places that you might be able to inject something into my software development pipeline, because not all of these subsidiaries or precursors are gonna be as strong as I am in terms of security capabilities. The other thought though, is that for a consumer, whether it's a government consumer or it could be a defense contractor or even a private corporation, you can look at it and say, you know what? I don't really like what's in this thing. And by maintaining an accurate and up-to-date data and the provenance, which is the origin of all the software code and components and all the third-party software, And these minimum elements, by the way, are supposed to be published by commerce within 60 days. It's now probably the biggest addition to the executive order. Software providers have to spell out the versions of the software they utilize. And now, as I mentioned, buyers can use that software bill of materials to perform their own vulnerability assessment or license analysis to decide whether or not a particular product is something we want to use. And in addition, The intelligence community can gain a little bit more insight in terms of looking at, well, where did some of these codes come from? Did they come from other nation states who have already exhibited, if you will, unfriendly, if not outright hostile intent to the United States or the open source? And then, of course, you can look at the open source and decide who's contributing and who's participating in that. NIST and NSA have 60 days to publish guidelines recommending some minimum standards for vendor testing of their software source code, including things such as code review tools, static analysis, dynamic analysis, software composition tools, and even pen testing. And this is a lot more specific and is gonna require a lot more application security testing going forward. Now, NIST initiates pilot programs to inform their customers of this product labeling and. Educating the public on what the security capabilities are of the Internet of Things. If you will, think of this as analogous to the nutrition labels on a food package. Some people don't want to consume certain items because they look at it and go, yeah, it's an artificial sweetener, I don't do those, or country of origin is a nation that I don't trust their food source. We have that choice today in what we put into ourselves, but we have not until this executive order had that choice to make that decision is what we put into our systems. Section 5 is establishing a Cyber Safety Review Board, review and assess significant cyber events. Now, this is going to be a lot of uh, elements in here. It comprises representatives of the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, CISA, NSA, FBI, as well as appropriate private sector cybersecurity or software suppliers as determined by the Secretary of Homeland Security. Hmm. And as a result, what we've got is influence, not on just a standalone government board, but you'll have industry being able to provide some input onto that. And Secretary of Homeland Security may invite participation of others on a case-by-case basis. Hmm. Now... With that, uh, key players would be whom? Well, whom do you think? Maybe Microsoft, Amazon, AWS, Google, Apple? And candidates such as that, it'd be interesting to see who else they put on there, if they would actually go to some pure play cybersecurity companies, either incident response organizations like that, who may be tapped for their knowledge in terms of what do you see the most when doing these investigations and therefore which we need to go ahead and put in there in terms of prevention. Section 6 is standardizing the federal government's playbook for responding to cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents. Hmm. CISA, OMB, Federal CI, Chief Information Security Council, shall develop a standard set of operational procedures, which we call a playbook, to use in planning and conducting cybersecurity vulnerability and incident response activities, Uh, respecting federal information systems? Well, to ensure this incident response is comprehensive and build confidence that unauthorized cyber actors no longer have access to our federal information systems. The playbook establishes consistent with law requirement for the director of CISA to review and validate the agency's incident response and remediation results once they've completed things. The playbook is going to articulate progress and completion through all their phases of incident response and provided some flexibility and the agencies that are going to be working with that will be able to go ahead and uh, coordinate effectively. Now what's interesting here is we ask ourselves a question as CISOs, is having a common playbook increase your risk or decrease the risk? And I think the answer is Yes. We decrease the risk, of course, by ensuring that we're using something that has been reviewed well. As a private pilot, if I'm going to fly a plane, I'm always going to use a checklist. If I had 10,000 hours of flying, I would still use a checklist. The point is, you don't have to worry about did I remember this? Did I forget something? The checklist, which is standardized, forces you through to go through a list of everything so you don't forget anything. So, from that perspective, having a standardized playbook. Is very helpful. Now, on the flip side, you kind of ask yourself the question, well, if you've laid out your entire response and somehow you've missed something, well, you've advertised that to your potential opponents, and they go, hmm, looks like they're not guarding that. Now, if we look at things like the MITRE ATT&CK framework, where we can go ahead and map the tactics and techniques that are being used by different threat actors, we know as CISOs that we can consolidate that information, overlay the different entities that our threat analysis indicates are most likely uh, to be our problem, and look for common points, at which point we say, that's where we ought to set up our defenses. At the same time, we want to ensure, though, that we don't leave anything unguarded. So I think there's going to be a little bit of pro and a little bit of con on that one. It'll be interesting to see how that goes forward. But it's definitely a step forward for a lot of organizations and a lot of entities that really don't have a solid playbook, and therefore, there'll be some federal standard for that. Section 7 is on about improving detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents on federal government networks. Here we're talking about requiring endpoint detection and response, EDR, cyber hunting or hunt teams. Containment and remediation, incident response, things that we're familiar with, but this is a codification of this requirement. Requires enabling CISA to have access to data that's relevant to a threat and vulnerability analysis, as well as for assessment and threat hunting purposes. What we're starting to see now is a concern that says some of this information that is gathered in investigations may never get consolidated. And in this particular case, we're saying that it, it needs to be brought together. If we can improve our detect, and then also our response. Furthermore, collecting this information, now an attacker who is attempting to go low and slow across multiple locations make it detected sooner. Because on a single location, they may be patient enough to simply go ahead and fly, if you will, below the radar. But now if we can coordinate these sensors and look for these commonalities, there's an opportunity here to provide a little bit earlier detect. Section eight is improving the federal government's investigative and remediative capabilities. Looking here about providing network and system logs to both CISA and the FBI on request. And probably one of the fastest requirements of this entire executive order within 14 days, Secretary of Homeland Security shall provide to the Director of OMB recommendations on requirements for logging events and retaining other relevant data within agency systems and networks. In addition, recommendations for the logs to be maintained, the period of time for to the maintain them, security requirements and how to protect them, and it specifies that logs shall be protected by cryptographic methods to ensure integrity and then periodically verified against the hashes going forward, we're going to be able to then have better capabilities, as I said, to correlate the, uh, the input information from multiple sources. Section 9 is on national security systems. And we talk about national security systems, uh, three-letter agencies, things like such as that. And those are specifically excluded from here. There's already... A lot of requirements that are specified that exist out there and indeed should be different based upon the risk to the United States of how that information is protected. And as a result, uh, the system requirements must at least meet or exceed these cybersecurity requirements if in some particular location uh, they do not. Now, Section 10 isn't really exciting its definitions, but it did say 10 sections. I didn't want to leave you hanging in terms of wondering what that last one, but it does go out and lays out some pretty good things. It's, and I guess 11 is general provisions, but and the, the nine core elements that we covered, and then, of course, nine national security systems exclude it. So probably the top eight, policy, removing barriers to sharing threat information, modernizing the federal government's cybersecurity. Enhancing software supply chain security, establishing a cyber safety review board, standardizing the federal government's playbook for responding to cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents, improving detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents on government networks, and improving the federal government's investigation and remediation capabilities. Ah, <sighs> okay. Lot there. It is kind of dry reading. I agree. And I'm doing the best I can to try to make it interesting. But let me, take, let me go over a couple of the notes that I took as I went through this document. The ability of the federal government and the president through an executive order is primarily focused on government agencies. Uh, they cannot issue Laws per se that can apply to private citizens or corporations like that without going through the proper legislation. However, it can certainly incentivize different companies and businesses, particularly those that do uh, contracts with the federal government, with the power of the purse. The government purchasing power provides that leverage. And as we've seen starting fairly recently, you know, last year, Katie Arrington, who is a CISO for DoD Acquisition, back in January 2020, was talking about rolling out the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model um, Certification Program for DoD contractors. And there's five letters levels of CMMC, and probably do an episode on that. If you want to, see, you know, let me know, and I'll, I'll go ahead and investigate that and bring you up to date on that. But CMMC for federal contractors is a big deal and getting that moved forward. Also, FISMA's been around for quite a while, Federal Information Systems Management Act. 2002 goes back a long way. And therefore, there's already some existing tools that are out there. But here, the leverage is both the purchasing power and the ability of NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to go ahead and establish some requirements in, in their own standards. And that in and of itself seems interesting, but now what happens is contracting officers and purchase orders and requirements and RFPs can specify contractual requirements that state that anybody wants to do business with the federal government must meet these minimum security standards. And if you are found in violation of them, not only do you lose your money and lose your contract, but there may be some penalties associated with it. A lot of us have looked and are familiar with the NIST Cybersecurity Framework. It's a framework for improving critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, and the version 1.1 came out about four years ago, April of 2018. And the Identify, Protect, Detect, Respond, Recover provides an excellent framework for how we look at setting up a response team. And it's designed so that if we do this effectively, uh, we can monitor how we're uh, accomplishing our security efforts we'll be able to have some meaningful response in our framework and then we can structure our activities based upon whatever phase that we happen to be in right there uh, for that particular function well if we think about that document was built for critical infrastructure not for government agencies But its success in being able to provide a intelligent standard may be extended. We might see a lot more requirements for using that. A big deal on labeling was here that I noticed that labeling was pointed out. And labeling, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult things that organizations have to do. Now, in Department of Defense, that was easy because everything every paragraph had a classification mark on it, and every page top and bottom had classification on it. And if it was above a certain level, you had to have a sheet on the front, and everybody signed for it, and you dated it, and there was a lot of overhead. But in general, we kept pretty tight controls on classified information because it was part of the culture. And cultures are difficult to change. John Cotter had said it takes three to ten years to change a culture, and yet With the issuance of this order, we're going to find a lot of organizations are going to need to rethink their security culture. They can no longer go, yeah, 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 we don't care about that. If the viability of the business is on the line because the federal government is going to say, hey, we're just going to cancel your contract. You are in violation of it. You don't get any money. And although there's one extreme that says, well, what if nobody does it? Then the government has no contractors and everything ends. That's not kind of the way America works. When we see an opportunity, we move toward it. And as a result, if you take a look at, for example, Microsoft's response with GCC High being able to provide a computing platform for DoD contractors so that they can meet the CMMC requirements. And there's a number of vendors out there. I think there are 26 of them that if you really needed to go to GCC High, you, you go through them and they can get your provision up there into the Microsoft Cloud. As I mentioned, the standardized playbook, which has both the pros and cons, I think that's a big plus though, because many organizations might not know the right way to respond and they could benefit from the collective wisdom from before. Now, what would be interesting to see is a feedback loop that we create so that these standardized playbooks continue to evolve and improve such that we fill the little tiny gaps and holes, et cetera, so that we're able to do things. Now, Again, the playbook for incident response suggests that an incident happened. And in the ideal world, we push everything to the left. So we're way up there at the identify phase, not at the protect, detect, respond, recover. So we're up there at the early functions. We're able to do a little bit better there. The information sharing and removing contractual barriers is huge. With federal contractors anyway, the concern, and it's kind of unaddressed in terms of liability here, that never really got touched on. But in some cases, what I've observed is that if you have a contractual requirement to report a breach or some other issue, well, then you do it. As, uh, as Warren Buffett had said, if you really want to learn to read an annual report, start with the footnotes. When an organization has to disclose something that they don't really want you to read, they'll put it in the tiniest font they can, which is usually a footnote. Well, in this case, there are requirements for uh, breach disclosure and notification and things such as that. Well, as we go forward, let's think about um, what happens if there were not a requirement. Do you do better to report for the good of the order? And it turns out, at least maybe uniquely in the United States, the answer is no, because you then tend to attract lawyers and lawsuits and um, saying, well, you know, you should have known better and thanks for telling us. And so now we can sue you. Eh, Not really the type of environment you really want to look forward to. And so as a result, there's a little bit of protection here, I would think, in that if the government requires that reporting, but perhaps there needs to be some sort of Get out of jail free, if you will, for good faith reporting of things such as zero days, et cetera. I don't know how courts do these things. I, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on television. But in general, I tell people stay out of the courtroom unless you're getting paid by the hour. If you're an expert witness, yeah, maybe not so bad. But otherwise, I'm not quite sure how these are going to work out from a legal perspective. Yes, we have a lot of different risks out there. There's, of course, financial risk, operational risk. There's regulatory risk, reputational risk, and there's also a legal risk involved here, which suggests that we might attract uh, some unwanted lawsuits. So we'll see how that plays out as well. The establishment of a cybersecurity safety review board, which I thought was kind of interesting, and uh, modernization requirements for FedRAMP. Wow. So a lot of stuff going on out there, and... For you as a security leader, I would think that this is going to be required reading. Now, if you really don't want to have to go through the whole thing, the nice thing is the White House has put out a fact sheet, same day, and you can Google for that if you wish. Uh, It's the fact sheet, President signs Executive Order Charting New Course to Improve the Nation's Cybersecurity and Protect Federal Government Networks. And in that particular item, which you can probably read that in about five minutes, is going to give you all the highlights. In any case, I hope this has been helpful for you. A little bit shorter than normal, but I'll return back some of your days so you can perhaps either look up some of these references or contemplate on them. But if you're in the federal government or working as a federal contractor, this is going to be huge. And if you're not, take advantage of the coattails that you can as a CISO to look at things such as this software build of materials and other types of capabilities out there. They're going to help you do a better job of managing your risk. I think we're going to see a big push for a lot more zero trust architecture. That was a term coined by John Kinderbog back in 2010, and actually goes back to about 2003 in terms of the genesis for it. But going forward, what we're looking to be able to do is plug a lot of these gaps. We're in an international environment where, for lack of a better term, espionage and cyber attacks are the norm. There is no global order so to speak. That is to say, uh, in the United States, you can go to a court, and if that doesn't work, you can do appeal. Eventually, you can end up with a district court and finally end up with the Supreme Court. But in general, nations tend to operate on their own. And therefore, it's uh, everybody for their, on their own and for themselves. And we need to do a much better job here in defending our infrastructure. So hopefully, you gained some insight on that. Let us know if this is helpful for you. Uh, go ahead and leave us a comment if you wish or contact us. Make sure you tell people uh, that you subscribe. We're at CISOTradeCraft.com. And of course, uh, let everybody else know, if you can, that uh, this is something that can be helpful for their career as well. Until next time, this is G. Mark Hardy. Thank you. Continue to follow us, and I look forward to uh, working with you in the future. Stay safe.